Hello everybody and welcome back to Spill Your Beans. Today we're back with another episode of The Who Review, the weekly show that we're doing now that Doctor Who is back on the air. Um, I'm here by myself today, as I was last week, and we're going to be talking through my sort of extended thoughts about the episode that went out on Sunday. Obviously you saw my YouTube review, maybe. Um, if you haven't, obviously go and check that out if you fancy it, but this is going to be a lot more in-depth and a lot more... Um, I don't know what I'm going to say, but like it's going to give a lot more coverage of the actual episode. It's less, it's not scripted at all, barely edited. It's just me waffling on about the episode. Um, before we begin, though, a huge, huge thank you to all of you who tuned in last week for the Halloween Apocalypse review. It's instantly shot up to my most uh, listened to podcast episode, so I really, really appreciate it. But I did want to advertise as well that we also do film reviews on Fridays. So if you are new to this podcast through the Doctor Who stuff, then please do consider staying for the film review stuff as well, where I have some great guests on and talk about some brilliant films with a lot of detail and a lot of fun. So, yeah. Um, the episode that went out last Friday was the MCU one, uh, part two, covering Thor, Captain America, the first Avenger, and the Avengers, um, with film graduate Ben Vasher. And this Friday, as far as I'm aware, I could be totally wrong with this, um, in terms of what I get edited, uh, but I believe we're reviewing Ghostbusters with the wonderful Stephen McCullough, who you might recognise from Doctor Who YouTube, for Saxon 07. So there we go. That's the film reviews coming up in the next, uh, you know, week and obviously last week as well. So please do consider checking those out um, if you're enjoying these Doctor Who review kind of things. You know, I'm joined with a guest, so it's not as boring as me being sat here by myself waffling on about Doctor Who. So, yeah, consider checking those out. Anyway, Doctor Who, Flux, Series 13, Chapter 2, Episode 2. War of the Sontarans. It's got a lot of titles, uh, this series, I've noticed that. Uh, but War of the Sontarans is an episode I was quite excited for um, going in. Uh, episode 1 left me on such a high note that I was kind of expecting something good from this. And I was pleasantly surprised. I've had time to rewatch it now. In my initial review, I said that I preferred the first episode. I still think that's true. Um, a lot for me when it comes to Doctor Who and, you know, films generally is rewatchability. If something's rewatchable, even if it's a bit shit, I quite like, I, you know, I prefer that. I prefer to be able to rewatch something and have the same amount of fun with it. And episode one of this series, The Halloween Apocalypse, is an episode I could see myself rewatching so often. Um, whereas re when I rewatched War of the Sontarans, although I definitely preferred it to the first time I watched it, it wasn't the, quite the rewatchable thing that I had from the first episode. But that doesn't mean it's bad at all. It's pretty bloody good. I'm not going to knock it. Um, we're going to sort of break down the main plot threads this time because similar to the first episode, there's a lot of different threads that go through this one. Um, so yeah, let's do that. Um, we'll start with the opening scene, the pre-credits. The one thing I really like about Flux is that it's really sticking to the cold opens for the series. Something Doctor Who used to do regularly in every episode, but since Jodie's era has been kind of on and off. Sometimes, um, I think in series 11, there wasn't any cold opens, as far as I'm aware, and in series 12, there was a couple here and there, but not too many. Most of them were just uh, previously things, um, so like recaps, whereas this series seems to have a solid cold open, as well as a previously um, bit, which is quite fun, which we saw with this episode, and I really liked that. I thought the pre-credits sequence of uh, this episode was really, uh, really good. I really liked the um, the black and white aesthetic. The second the, um, you know, anything new started, it was black and white. It had lots of noise on there. It, like, it didn't look like it was shot on film. It definitely wasn't. It was much more of a digital thing. But it looked impressive. The uh, the design of it and the aesthetic of it looked really cool. You've got the 13th Doctor looking up at this big 
floating house, which was never really explained or expanded upon, but we'll presume it will come up later on in the series. Very interesting. Um, a lot of people bringing up Lung Barrow. Now, I don't really know much about Lung Barrow. Um, I was not a wilderness years kid, so I don't really know the story of Lung Barrow, but I'm aware of the kind of stuff that it does. Like, the Lung Barrow house is supposed to be the Doctor's family home or something like that. You've also got stuff like looms, um, and basically covering the Doctor's sort of heritage uh, with the Time Lords. So that's interesting because it does play into Series 12 a little bit with the Timeless Children, talking about where the Doctor came from, the Doctor's heritage, all that sort of thing. Um, and then bringing up this big, ominous, floating house, um, which feels very kind of out there for Doctor Who. It's, it's a bit of a strange visual. It reminds me of kind of... Um, I don't know what it reminds me of, really. Just sort of like quite out there classic sci-fi i guess it's like quite strange quite out there but it you know it does the trick it's a lot of fun um but yeah i i really like the aesthetic of it and i'm interested to see where that'll go i hope the sort of floating house thing has some sort of really good impactful meaning behind it because the visual aesthetic of it is gorgeous and i really hope it has some deeper meaning there so i can just fall in love with this bit of iconography for doctor who now um so fingers crossed the rest of the opening scene is brilliant. Um, obviously, they land in the Crimea from where we saw them last time, where the TARDIS was getting sort of eaten up by the flux, which is quite interesting because, again, it hints to a lot of theories, a lot of people talking about the flux, um, not actually destroying everything, but um, displacing them through time. And I think it's interesting that the flux is, you know, going mental. It's basically got to the TARDIS. There's not like, It's not as if the Doctor and that escaped or whatever like that. It wasn't... Um, it wasn't the hostile action displacement unit or whatever it's called system could be i can't had yeah displacement system sorry um it wasn't the tardis just disappearing because it got damaged or something it was genuinely like we don't actually have an explanation the flux got to the tardis as far as we're concerned and then the doctor the tardis uh yaz and dan just end up in the crimea and it's not really too clear why so an interesting thing would be at that point um that the flux is displacing people through time and space. I'm not sure about universe yet, but it's something that's on the back of my mind. If I'm putting my theory cap on for a minute, um, the flux could very easily be displacing people through different universes. I don't know how true that is, um, but this series is looking very big scale. And of course, you've got the Timeless Children stuff, you've got all that sort of stuff. I don't know whether it'll go into sort of hinting towards multiverse stuff, um, but I will get into that in a bit, because it isn't too like badly founded it, there is some you know interesting things supporting that theory uh from my end at least I, I at least i think you know i could be totally wrong there's probably not going to do any multiverse stuff but i i quite like the idea that they might venture into this despite the fact that it's not my instant like um you know passion for doctor who uh, in terms of its direction from now on i think the doctor's own heritage and this hidden life is mystery enough without a multiverse but there is some stuff hinting towards it and i'll talk about that um in just a bit but yeah the rest of that opening scene was great they land in the crimea uh, they meet mary seacole who i'll talk about in just a bit but um yeah they you know the doctor's like right okay which part of the crimean war is this like where are the are you fighting the russians or you know whatever um and the very sequel takes them up onto a hill he says no they're fighting santarans which is a great little reveal that they even know what santarans are and there's this gorgeous shot of the commander coming through on a horse um before this big sort of little speech 
about like surrendering and then followed by the Santarans doing the Santar Ha thing. Um, which is a great chant and I'm so glad they brought it back for this. Um, it was a great little opening scene. And yeah, no, I'm, I'm just glad they went in the direction that they did with the Santarans. I know we've talked about that loads before in the YouTube review, but genuinely I'm going to keep ranting about it through this. Like the Santarans and this are some of the best Santaran like action, I guess, I've seen in a long time with them. Um, New Who hasn't been too kind with them. And I know there's a lot of criticism regarding the, the aiming of the Santarans. And we'll talk about that in just a bit when we get to the Liverpool stuff. But yeah, I think this is probably the best the Santarans have been done in a very, very long time. Um, yeah. Anyway, they all get teleported away. Yaz goes to some temple, Dan goes back to Liverpool in the modern day. Um, so we're going to talk about all these different things individually. We're going to start with the story of the Santarans in Crimea. Um, with Mary Seacole, the British Army, all that sort of thing. I thought this was interesting. It was probably the stuff that I was most intrigued with, um, I'll be honest. I think um, Jodie did a great job and, it was, and I was so relieved in a way to see Jodie just being by herself. I think Jodie is better as the Doctor, I think, personally, when she's not around loads of other people, which is why it didn't work really too well for me with Series 11 and Series 12. It did work, because there's so many characters, it's just no one's being given enough time to shine. With this episode, um, like, I really liked how they're all separated, so they all get time to shine in their own right. Um, the Doctor especially, I think, with the scene where she meets the captured Sontaran, I think is brilliant. Um, it's really cleverly done. It's great to see Dan Starkey back as the Sontaran as well. Like, he obviously wasn't Strax, but I really like that, and I'm glad he wasn't Strax. That's not a criticism. Um, I like how they managed to combine the Sontaran elements in this. I think it feels like the Sontarans from the Time Warrior and, like, the Sontaran experiment with the chant of the Russell T. Davis era and a little bit of the Moffat era Sontaran comedy stuff, if you know what I mean. Um, Moffat, I feel, went too hard with the Sontaran comedy stuff. They were never a serious threat. It was always like a joke about looking like a potato and stuff. But it injected enough of that where it wasn't too overbearing and the Sontarans were still like a credible threat in this episode. Um, you know, whilst, you know, it, it felt like a great incorporation of all of the Sontaran history in Doctor Who. This, to me, is the definitive Sontaran, which I can't say the same about the Tribunal era like Cybermen, for example. But yeah, no, I think the Doctor and the Sontaran storyline, I think, worked really well. I like to see, um, sort of where they were taking that. Um, you know, again, generally I've talked about the Sontarans enough. I feel like I'm going to go ranting on about the Sontarans, like, more than enough. Um, but yeah, I really like the story that they had there. The Sontarans, you know, sending a sort of, almost like a pilot squad out through history. And they go to the Crimea because it's just sort of a war-infested time. Everyone wants to fight with each other. Um, going to that right place at the right time and being like, yeah, we'll fight everyone taking over their own personal history. So Mary Seacole and the British Army think that Russia and China doesn't exist. It's instead Santar. But they recognise the names of Russia. So it's like some sort of perception filter. It's not entirely explained. I think it is explained, but I keep missing it. Um, but like some sort of perception filter around it where it's sort of they believe that the Santarans have always been there and Santar has always been that place. It's never been Russia. It's never been China. Yet they still recognise the words Russia and China. Um, it's an interesting one. The story kind of has a lot of uh, sort of a lot going for it. I really like how the Doctor usually speaks for humanity, but this uh, kind of cuts apart with the British General being quite a warmonger. Um, we get that fantastic scene where the Doctor meets the General of the Sontarans, and she sort of like talks him down a little bit uh, and says, you know, she speaks for humanity, and there will be no fight here. And then the British Army General comes in and ruins it. 
the feeling of the Doctor standing there and being told that she speaks for no one. And I think the Santara says, you speak for no one, not even your pitiful self. And I think that's such a brilliant line, um, especially for this Doctor, in the place that she is at the moment. What she's discovered about herself and her history, and realise how much she doesn't actually know about herself. Um, I think that's fascinating. And I think that's a, a really nice line to kind of coincide with that. Imagine how hard that must have hit the Doctor in that scene. I think that's a really... Yeah, I just I just think the line was pretty neat, that's all. Um, but yeah, no, it's, it's pretty cool. I, I like that that entire exchange, and I, I like the impact that that had on the Doctor, clearly, because you could tell it pissed her off. I like the inclusion of Venusian Aikido, um, and obviously the battle between the Sontarans and the British Army was phenomenal. It looked amazing. There's a few shots in this episode where the CGI looks a bit dodgy, but bar them... It looks incredible, like, the whole time. Um, the battle, especially with the, like, thousands of Suntarans and the thousands of, like, British soldiers fighting. I don't know why the British soldiers even thought they had a chance. It, it does baffle me a little bit that they knew they were fighting Suntarans. They knew the guns and abilities that they had. Yet, they're still happy to send all their soldiers into a totally open battle where they know they're all going to get slaughtered. It's a strange one, but they do. And then you get the sort of uh, British army general guy being a bit, like... You know, just a typical British army general. You get them all the time in Doctor Who. And I know a lot of people, when I heard the line about Jodie Whittaker, um, well, sorry, the 13th Doctor, saying, you know, it's men like you who make me wonder why I even bother, or some, something along those lines. I know, like, I haven't looked into these videos because they're not my cup of tea, but I know some people online are going to pick that apart and be like, oh, it's like anti you know, anti-men or whatever, I don't, like, I don't give a shit about that. That's bollocks, basically. Because <laughs> um, Doctor Who has done these sort of characters time and time again. Like, look at um, Cold War. Look at the Empress of Mars. Like, British um, soldiers, or just soldiers in general, being showcased as these sort of warmongers who are obsessed with war. Even if the solution is being put right in front of them, is like, look, no one has to die. This is This would be the easiest way to do this. You know, the 13th Doctor had a great plan here. It might not make much sense with all the Santorans going back to their ship at the same time. That's a little bit of a criticism, I think, where it's like, that doesn't really make much sense. They are supposed to be masters of war, yet they all leave themselves exposed um, for that amount of time. I suppose the only thing about that is that they do disappear behind this sort of rock wall thing that they don't know the Doctor's discovered. Um, so... It's like, fair enough, at that point, they probably would think that they're safe and they could, But you'd still have a couple on guard, though. You'd have a few guards on Tarans, you know, keeping notes, make sure no one tampers with it. Because if someone tampers with it, then, well, they all die, as you saw. <laughs> so that was interesting. It was a bit of a strange plot point. But I think it worked for the context of the episode. Again, I love the fact that that was done throughout an entire hour. It felt like everything had time to breathe. And this is just one third of the whole story, yet... It worked incredibly well. I think the Doctor did great. I think Mary Seacole's actor, I wasn't too keen on. Like, she did a decent job. Um, but I think it was a mix between the acting and the sort of... Um, the acting. It was a mix between the um, accent and the overacted kind of performance a little bit. I don't want to be too critical, because I can't act for shit. But it did throw me out a couple times where I was like, I'd prefer someone else do these lines. <laughs> um, and again, like, as I said in my uh, YouTube video, I, I would have really liked her to have a little bit more significance. She's a, a, a brilliant woman in history who has been overlooked, um, who people don't really... I mean, you, you hear more about her now, but, you, you know, she didn't get the recognition she deserved at the time, um, really, as far as I'm aware. Um, 
and it's one of those things where you'd expect like them to do a sort of Nikola Tesla thing where Nikola Tesla was made to be a very important person and he is as was Rosa Parks and when they do historical figures in Doctor Who even King James felt like he got more to shine and I think that's just the thing with Flux is you're gonna get this overarching thing that you can't have those individual personal stories about the historical figure being um, unrecognized you know um, and Mary Seacole kind of would have really benefited from that kind of Nikola Tesla night of terror treatment where she was kind of idolised and was sort of talked about in, in terms of her history, in terms of who she was as a person. Again, that sort of educational side of Doctor Who I really like. But I went into this episode not really knowing too much about Mary Seacole, and I left this episode still not knowing much about Mary Seacole, other than that she was a nurse, but I kind of knew that anyway um, in the Crimean War. So it's a bit of a shame because, again, like, I know everyone's like, oh, Doctor Who shouldn't be educational first and foremost, but I quite like it to be. It always has been in a way. And I would have liked to have had more of a spotlight on Mary Seacole as a historical figure. So, I don't know. But that's that's, that's just me. Um, I like the idea of the general blowing up the Santaran ships. It feels, it feels decent. But then, I don't know, I can't help but wonder a little bit why the Doctor would be outraged at that, but not outraged at Dan and Carvanista for smashing a Sontaran ship into a bunch of others. Yes, it was like a temporal bomb, so it just sends them through time, but like, you're still smashing a spaceship into a bunch of other spaceships. Like, you are still... I mean, there was one of the ships just fell apart like paper. Like, you definitely killed a few Sontarans in that process. Um... Especially the ones that were knocked out on board of the one that you already were flying. I don't know. We'll get to that sort of stuff in a bit. But I'm not trying to pick holes, but when it's that obvious, I'm like, okay, I get why the Doctor would be upset at the, the general guy. That makes perfect sense, and I, I totally am behind that message. But then it feels weird to have that intercut with a scene where Dan almost basically does exactly the same, but, you know, doesn't kill as many Sontarans, but does kill Sontarans by slamming a ship um, into a bunch of other ships and then sending them through time like the ship still got smashed up the ship still got damaged one of them fell apart entirely so there was definitely a few deaths in there i'm trying not to nitpick but it is quite obvious when it happens at the same point in the story anyway um i think that's all i want to say about the Santarans and the the doctor and all that sort of thing i thought the Santarans were handled brilliantly i've gushed about that more than enough though the design is brilliant the voice is brilliant the aesthetic is brilliant it's probably my favourite new Who Santaran story, uh, easily, there's not really many to go from. Um, I haven't watched the Sarah Jane Adventures one in a long time, but maybe maybe that does top it, I don't really know. Um, but I think the design and the aesthetic of the Santarans here really resonates more with me. I'm a big fan of um, the Santaran experiment. Uh, I think that's a brilliant, I think that's probably my favourite Santaran story, full stop. This actually might be a close second, I'm not a huge fan of the Time Warrior, so I'm not really sure. But yeah, it, it kind of falls in that territory. Then we've got Yaz and Vinda in the Temple of Atropos, I think it is. Um, I'll be honest, when I first saw these scenes, I was I was kind of bored out of my mind. But then when I rewatched it, I really liked it. I feel like when I first watched it, I was kind of bored because I didn't really know what was going on. And it was kind of roughly explained as like, okay, there's something here. It doesn't work. It needs repairing. Vinda wasn't doing much. Yaz was doing about as much as she can, but she wasn't given too much to work from. And then suddenly Swarm and Azor arrive, um, or I can call them the Ravagers now, which was announced via a behind-the-scenes video on the Doctor Who YouTube channel, which was very strange, but they are apparently the Ravagers. So, the Ravagers arrived, and, you know, that's when I was interested. 
But then going back and on, on rewatch, I did enjoy these scenes a lot more. It has to be said, I'm not a fan of the um, the Williamson Tunnels guys. They are boring. They always drag me out of a scene. Like, I, I, I know their story will be important. And I'm sure when that story does get revealed, I'll love it. But up until that point, I can't help but feel their inclusion is so ham-fisted. Like, there's a tiny scene at the beginning of the Halloween apocalypse, which doesn't really connect to anything else at the moment. And then they have this temple scene where the guy just rocks up, waffles a bunch of shit about what year it's supposed to be where he is, and then fucks off. And like, in the nicest way possible, I, I want it to be a bit more engaging than that. I know it's eventually going to come into play. I'm not stupid. It is one big six-part arc. Of course he's going to come into play. Of course it's going to be important. But it didn't feel like he's... It didn't feel like it gelled as well as any of the other plot points in this series so far. So at the moment, every time the guy comes on screen, I'm like, this isn't relevant to me yet. So it's like, I may as well wait and just rewatch this when their episode's out. It just feels weird. Um, and again, it's, like, it's not as if there was any new dialogue there to really go off and talk about. Like, okay, somehow he's ended up in this temple and then he disappears. So what he's doing, he's doing some sort of timey thing. I, I don't know, but it's it's... There's no, like, new explanation there. It's just, oh, here I'm a grumpy old bastard from, like, the 1800s. Whoop-de-doo. Um, but, yeah. Um, obviously, the Ravagers arrive. That, that's the, the best. I love this part of the story now. I think it's it's really engaging. I wasn't too keen on Swarm and Azor in Episode 1. I, was, I didn't love them. I, I liked them, but I was a bit like, I don't know if these can be the big part of the series. This episode proved me so wrong, and I could not be more happy about it. They are so creepy but so like camp in a really good way <laughs> i don't know how to say that without being like rude but yeah no like in a really good way they're quite camp and like flamboyant but creepy as fuck like they're really terrifying to look at when they're on screen the kind of presence they have it's really creepy and i like it that's a good thing that's absolutely a compliment i think they did a great job with how those characters are portrayed on screen. I think the actors are doing a stellar performance, um, and I think the prosthetic work actually looks really good. There's a few shots where Swarm looks a bit strange, and the costume looks a bit naff, because um, he does look like he's wearing designer jeans. But, <laughs> beyond that, I think it looks brilliant. When uh, Vinda was shooting at him, and he just kept disappearing and reappearing in different places laughing, I thought that was brilliant. That's some proper classic Doctor Who vibes right there it felt like and i think that's the whole thing of this series so far is it feels like doctor who going back to normal a little bit this feels like proper doctor who again not that the last two series haven't but there was something a little bit off about them and i can't quite put my finger on it i've just rewatched them and there is a clear difference and step up between series 11 and 12 and flux weirdly and i wasn't expecting flux to be that good i'm just dead impressed with the format the serialization and the characters that it's introducing the chibnall era has given us loads of new monsters and aliens and all that sort of thing that it's trying to get us interested in. And like, I like half of them. The Kablam men are cool, right? The demons of the Punjab, the Thajarians, they're cool. It's a nice idea. They look great, yeah. But like, they're not too memorable. Whereas like, Carvanista and the Lupari, they feel like... They feel like a new version of like the Ood or something. They feel like a, a new bit of Doctor Who iconography that I'm excited to see more from. Like they're the kind of monsters I could see Lupari appearing ten years down the line and be like, "Oh, the Lupari are back." I'd love that. That'd be great. And Swarm and Azor, really brilliant. Like Tim Shaw was all right, of course, but I was a bit like, 
they're a bit, he's a bit pointless, isn't he? He's a bit, he's got a cool voice and a cool aesthetic and he was performed brilliantly. But I'm like, nah, you know, a bit forgettable. Especially since they just locked him up after the end of Series 11. Whereas Swarm and Azor actually feel like imposing brilliant villains. They've got personality. Like when he came out and just called out Yaz for the thing on her hand, I thought that was really clever and brilliant and just, it was brilliant. I, I really liked it, you know. He, he choked out Yaz and basically has killed her in this next episode. We don't know for sure what exactly is going on yet. Obviously, she's probably going to survive till the Centenary special. But, God, you really feel that threat, don't you? When it's like right at the end there, when uh, the Doctor and Dan arrive. And yeah, but we'll get to that as the finale of the episode. But generally, the stuff with the temple I thought was really, do uh, really good. I feel like it's something that, again, needs to be expanded a lot more in the next episode, but the whole uh, the whole next episode is based on the same planet, so presumably we're going to be going and doing stuff with that. But yeah, I really liked it. I just want to know more about it, because there wasn't too much of the temple scene um, stuff in this episode. But yeah, I really liked it all the same. And then we've got Dan in Liverpool. Um, Dan's great. I thought, um, I thought John Bishop kind of reined it in a little bit in episode one. In episode two here, he gets to breathe a lot more. Um... The jokes are really funny. I, I, I hate to say it, I know a, a lot of people don't like it, but my god, like, when you compare to, like, the resolution line about, like, I guess we'll have to have a conversation, compare that to, like, John Bishop standing there with a walk, Sontaran comes in and he goes, you alright, mate? I was just looking for the pier head. I thought, that's brilliant, that's so, I don't know why, but it just made me laugh. And, like, he, he jokes about the commander, the guy turn, the Sontaran turns around, he whacks him on the back of the head, you know, he makes a joke about walking away, and then he turns around and there's a whole fleet of Sontarans and he uses the same line about looking for the pier head. And I thought that were brilliant. I genuinely thought that was so funny. As one example of many, I think they managed to really get it down with John Bishop. It really worked. I wasn't super keen on his parents. I, you know, they were cool, but they were kind of just there for a minute and then, and then went just to sort of introduce them, I suppose. Um, to be honest, I get more from them already than I have from the Khan family, which is a little bit depressing. I really love the family vibes of Doctor Who. That was what Russell did with his era, and I absolutely adored that. The fact that we could see the Companion's family and their believable, normal characters with believable, normal feelings and thoughts. It's like, you know, for an era that's actually been quite focused on family, especially with Graham and Ryan. There hasn't been too much of it, especially with the Khan family. It's like, did the Khan family even know about the Doctor yet? I don't even know. Because the last time we properly saw... I mean, we saw them in Spyfall, but the last time we saw them before that was Arachnids in the UK. When Yaz was like, oh, I'll tell you all about the Doctor when I come back. That's years ago now. What, like, what's going on? I, I kind of want to see what the, what, what's happening with the family. Because again, it's like, that's an important thing for me. That sort of grounds it. That's a new perspective to be like, yeah, this Yaz has changed or whatever. I don't know, it's, it's, it's interesting, and I would like to see more of that. But it's great to see that with Dan's parents here. Um, a few people complaining about um, the age difference between John Bishop and John Bishop's like parents being like 10 years or something, and not that much. And I would just like to remind those people that it's called acting, like it's a performance, you know? Like, I, I know it's like, the actors could be a certain age or whatever, but like, so what? If John Bishop's playing, like, a character that's supposed to be 10 years younger than his actual age, or his parents are supposed to be playing a character that's, like, 10 years older than their actual age, that's kind of the point of acting. You know, like, the Doctor... I, I know that everyone uses the same argument, but, like, the Doctor's not act. You know, Jodie Whittaker's not actually 2,000 years old, is she? So, it doesn't matter. The character is. I just... It's a very... It, it, it's a good thing for me 
to see that argument, because if that's the nitpicky argument that we're having on Twitter and all that sort of thing, then the episode did quite well. <laughs> if that's the kind of argument we have to sort of pick out, um, then it's doing all right, as far as I'm concerned. The other big criticism, which I think actually does have legs, to be honest, um, is the Santarans and the way they're like shooting. Because obviously they're in Liverpool as well, and I think they're done brilliantly. I loved the execution scene. I thought that was done really well. Quite dark, but I really liked it. it reminded me again about like um, Santaran strategy, where they just don't give a shit, um, and I quite like that. But a lot of people criticise the fact that the Santarans could not hit anything in this episode. Um, especially when you look back again at the Santaran stratagem in Poison Sky. There's a fantastic shot where they just stand in a corridor and wipe out loads of soldiers. A um, couple things to note. Obviously, I agree with you. They definitely were not able to hit shit in this. Um, for me, personally, if we're going to use the comparison of the Santaran stratagem in the Poison Sky... That was a hallway, and everyone was standing still. They were all trying to scramble to get their guns in. They weren't exactly moving targets. I'm not saying Dan running around would have made that, like, you know, would have made the Santarans any more inept. But, like, you know, it's some, it, there is a slight difference there of people who are standing still and someone who's running rapidly through a street. Um, you know, you try running and aiming a gun at the same time. I know Santarans are supposed to be battle warriors, but you can't really complain about them being a bit shit in this episode. When they've been ass all throughout Moffat era. Um, like, I don't think... I think you look at Strax, for example, in like, the Crimson Horror when he got his gun back. Like, when he ran down that corridor shooting at all the um, all the um, workers in the factory, he didn't hit a single bloody one of them <laughs> on screen. Because he probably wasn't able to, because it would be a bit dark. But, you know, there you go. Um, I, I think the other thing as well is it's just its story. It's maybe not effective story. To rewrite that scene, it would be very easy just to, instead of having about six or seven Santarans chasing Dan, just having two, who, just as they're about to shoot the guy, his parents come behind him and whack them on the back of the head, opposed to them even having a chase or even firing up their guns to begin with. The other scene, of course, is the one with Carvanista. Again, simple solution there is just having less Santarans in the room. It's a shame, because that is quite obvious, but, because Carvanista was dashing around, Carvanista is kind of like a warrior, like he does know how to fight, so maybe he's just dodging them, I don't really know, I'm trying to make excuses at this point, because it is a bit shit that they just don't hit anything, it was more obvious to me with the Carvanista scene than it was with the um, Dan running away scene, but like with the Dan running away scene you could very easily rewrite that, and with the Carvanista scene, yeah, it is a bit naff, but the Santarans have been naff for years, we can't just start complaining about that now as if it's like a brand new thing. It's like, oh, suddenly the Santarans are, are shit and they, they were always brilliant before. It's like, no, they've been shit for years because they've been treated like a joke. And now they're being done seriously. Not perfectly, don't get me wrong. It's my favourite interpretation of the Santarans. I like them to be a bit shit whilst still being, like, serious. You know what I mean? With the gun stuff and them not being able to hit anything, it's just that, and like stormtroopers, you know? It's not the end of the world, it's not the biggest thing, and again, I'll reiterate the point, if we're nitpicking about that, then I feel like the episode on the whole did quite well. I think there's a lot more to pick out there than whether or not the Santarans should be that accurate shooting guns, because there's a few performances in this episode that aren't great. There's a few bits of dialogue that aren't great. There's a few visuals and VFX stuff that don't look amazing, but if we're nitpicking about that and the age difference of two actors, I feel like generally we're doing quite well. 
<laughs> I feel like, you know, it's valid criticism all round. Like, if you don't like something and it, it really pulled you out of it, that's totally fair. Uh, you know, for example, The Mandalorian, it's a totally off-topic thing. But, like, everyone loves that last Luke Skywalker scene, and I did as well. But I'm not going to deny that I was totally pulled out of it by the really shit deepfake effect that they used. It didn't look convincing. And it looked so robotic. It just threw me right out of it. I was really emotional and loving it. And then it just pulled me right out. And that's fine. That's normal. It's valid to have these opinions and thoughts and all that sort of thing. It's valid to think that the Sontarans were a bit shit in this episode by not being able to hit anything. Because they should be able to. They, they should be. That's what they're established. They're established to be warriors. They should be able to hit stuff. But at the same time, just accept it as the story. Like, that's just it. There's more things to... Re if you want to be critical about it, there is a lot to go off in this episode. As it's... You know, same as first episode, same as many episodes of Doctor Who. If you want to be critical about something, there is so much there to be critical about. The weird nitpicks. I'm just going to let that police car go past. Um, the weird nitpicks just don't really land with me. Because I'm like, well, why are you picking on that when there's all this here to go off? It's not a perfect episode. As I said, I don't really like Mary Seacole's performance. But maybe the people who are nitpicking about the Santaran Blasters quite liked everything else. Which is quite telling, to be honest, if you have to nitpick that far. I don't know. I'm just waffling at this point. But... Yeah, down in Liverpool, I think, what else do I think? I, I think I like the Carvanista scene when Carvanista rocked up and started shooting the Santarans. I cheered. I, I honestly, I, I'm ashamed for saying it, but I did cheer. I, I thought he was brilliant. I really love Carvanista as a character. He's so daft, but he's so good. And it's sort of like, again, it shows this sort of arc going through the series. As I said in my YouTube review, it's not like individual episodes where they just sort of link on at the end. Every episode is part of a wider story. Every thread that's going through it, like the Victorian guy showing up, as much as my criticism, like it's, you know, it's still there and it's still it's part of the major story. Carvanista rocking up, like the Doctor still needing to have a word with Carvanista, you know, all this sort of stuff. The Santarans being in episode one, it's like it's clever because it sets all of it up and it plays all the way through. And I'm sure when all six episodes are out, you could watch all six of them. Probably a, a, a strange decision, but if you wanted, you could binge all six in a day, probably, and have a phenomenal Doctor Who-like event. I love that, and I think that's exactly what Doctor Who should have been doing in the Chibnall era from the beginning. Criticise the lack of episodes all you want. I think this is how Doctor Who should really be done. It's a great, unique sort of standpoint for Doctor Who that I haven't seen in years. It reminds me of, like, Children of Earth. And Doctor Who has always done this thing where it's always individual and always does its own thing. It's fine, and I like that, but it does leave a lot of filler in there. Whereas this, none of it feels like filler, you know? There's no, like, Praxius or um, Orphan 55 in this series. It's all just a continuous story, and I really, really like that. You know, shoot me. Um, I'm trying to think about what else to say. About, about the Dan in Liverpool stuff, I am going on a bit of a tangent here. Um, Dan in Liverpool, I think the bit where he jumped out the ship was a bit shit. Um, the CGI there with the little, little people dropping out the ship was a bit naff, but the rest of that shot looked great where it smashed into the fleet. That was genuinely the most impressive CGI shot I think I've ever seen in Doctor Who. It looks brilliant. Um, genuinely really impressive. But yeah, I think Dan's improved from last time, and I like Carvanista as a character. I like Dan's parents being in this. It's a nice inclusion, and I think it's a, it's a step up in terms of character from episode one, uh, where Dan didn't really get too much to do. Um, in the finale of this episode, Dan and the Doctor head to the temple um, to try and save Yaz, and we find out that Yaz has got the, you know, been put in as one of the Mori, and she's going to have a whole time running through her head, and that little countdown is absolutely brilliant. I love that. 
I, j- I just love that, like how that works. The way that Swarm is, is sort of walking up to it, about to click his finger, and when he does, the whole time vortex and the whole power of time is going to run through Yaz's head, and she will probably die. And the Doctor is begging for Yaz's life, like tears in her eyes. Brilliant performance all round, and so suspenseful. When I first watched it, I thought, oh, this is brilliant. When I rewatched it, I'm like, oh my god, this is brilliant. This is one of the best cliffhangers I think I've seen in a long time for Doctor Who. It really worked. It really really worked. I mean, name the last time we had a great cliffhanger like that in Doctor Who. Yeah, we had the Master Reveal last series, you know. We had a great cliffhanger last week, we've had a great cliffhanger this week. I'm really excited every week now because I know we're going to end up on a great cliffhanger that leaves us excited for the next one. Um, and I'm here for it. I absolutely adore that. I think that's brilliant. Um, yeah, I'm trying to think of what else to say, really. I think it was a great ending, really solid story. Probably still not the re- most rewatchable episode of the series yet i still prefer episode one i think even though this does a lot more with character um it's the some of the best interpretations i've seen of the Santarans in a lot like a long long time um yeah i think it's just pretty good pretty pretty exciting it's, it's really got me back on board with doctor who at the moment which i really wasn't feeling that before series 13 but i'm really like i'm here for it now i'm quite excited and you know that's great to be able to say um talking about uh next time um there's a few theories going around i don't want to delve too much into it because i think that next time looks so complicated and weird that i don't even want to start thinking about it because people are theorizing about like an alternate reality an evil version of the doctor like um you know joe martin stuff i don't know what to believe i like to think that there's going to be some sort of strange thing going on here once upon time the planet being called time and you know once upon a time being used for like a historical context of like something that happened a long time ago i'm feeling that this episode might be something based around swarm and the doctor's origins together how they know each other and playing off that a little bit because we've had the first episodes which which kind of set that up we've had a Santaran episode then we're going to have this episode and then a weeping angel episode and then two more before the end of the series i'm kind of guessing that this is going to be a bit of a law heavy episode and i hope it is because i feel like it'd be a perfect opportunity to do so there's clearly a connection between swarm and the planet time the doctor doesn't know about the planet yet so that's interesting and i just wonder where that's going to go and what's going to happen with that i'd like to see I'd like to see how that's done, um, although I'm not 100% yet how they're going to do it and what they're going to do, but I'm f- crossing my fingers for some proper law-breaking stuff, you know, I'm a fan of the Timeless Children stuff, and anything, even vaguely Jewel Martin related, she might not even be in it, but the Ruth Doctor, the Fugitive Doctor, if there's any sort of reference in there, I'm going to love it. Although, I don't really know what else to say. We've had a couple comments from Twitter, I've recorded this quite late, so I haven't got too many comments from Twitter this week, but let's read the ones that are there. Um, at the Lonely Dalek 20 said the Mori were put in place by the Time Lords to govern time and keep watch over it. I don't know, there's definitely some sneaky Time Lord antics going on with Atropos. I mean, it's located on a planet called Time, for goodness sake. I think that's a great theory, um, but it's, it's where it takes place, you know what I mean? Because this takes place in the sort of era where Time Lords might not have even existed. You know what I mean? It's like if the Doctor's the Timeless Child, we know she came from some random planet or whatever. The division and all that sort of thing is very early workings of the time lord agencies um so i'm kind of like i'm interested to see what they're going to do with that but hopefully it is involved in the time lords and the history of the time lords and all that sort of thing because i love that last series i would love to have some sort of inclusion like someone like omega or rassilon rocking up at some point in this series would be incredible it's not going to happen but it would be amazing and with the gallifrey and history stuff this would probably be the best time for omega to actually rock up at some point in doctor who 
um, nowadays. So I don't know. Let's wait and see, I guess. But um, I think it definitely is something to do with the Time Lords. You're, you're 100% right there. Ben Saunders said, uh, Spider-Man logo Santaran ship. Spider-Man is a Santaran. Marvel and Doctor Who are in the same universe. Great, impeccable theory there. Uh, and the Rebel of Time has said, it just screams that Tribunal adores Classic Who, and I love that. I totally agree. I think um, this really does scream that. You know, it's got a lot of love, especially the reference to Lynx um, from the Time Warrior. I thought it was really cool. A really nice mention and inclusion there. Um... Yeah, no, generally I was I was a big fan of, of um, what they did with this, and you can tell Chibnall's passionate, passionate about it. I was worried at first that, um, like, Chibnall wasn't going to be able to do as good a job. You know, I, I love Chris Chibnall and his passion for the show and his energy for the show. Um, you know, obviously I was lucky enough to have that set visit last year, and he was bloody brilliant there. He was really lovely, and you could tell he was so passionate about it. But his writing sometimes isn't quite the thing that we all want and love from Doctor Who. Um, whereas this series, I think he's absolutely smashing it. I think both episode one and two have done brilliantly so far. He's writing next week. He's co-writing week four with Maxine Alderton. And then he's writing episode five and six. Two out of six so far are pretty good. If we can keep this trend up next week, that's going to be half a series that is actually pretty consistently good. This could end up being one of the best series in Doctor Who, in modern Doctor Who. So, yeah, let's wait and see. Um, I don't know what I'm going to give this out of, uh, out of 10. I can't remember what I gave last week, but I might give it... I'm, I'm going to think I'm going to give this a 7 out of 10. If I gave last week a 7 out of 10, then it can be on the same line as that. I don't mind. I think I'm going to give this a 7 as well. It's really good. It has a lot going for it. It's a few things that knock about for me. I need to give it a few more rewatches to really work out if I like it more, because I feel like I do. But at the moment, I'm going to stick with 7. A very rough 7. Potentially a generous 8 at one point, but I don't really know yet. But that's kind of where I'm sticking with it. Um, I thought it was pretty good. Um, and I'm really excited for next week. So yeah. Um, thank you so much for listening to this podcast episode of me rambling on about War of the Sontarans. Join us, of course, next week. Um, next Wednesday for my review of Once Upon Time, the full in-depth one. And if you want my initial thoughts, my first reactions to Once Upon Time, that will be going out this Sunday on YouTube. And of course, if you want to see some film reviews with some very special guests, you can check out every Friday on this podcast show where we'll be reviewing different films every week. And this week, I believe it is Ghostbusters with the wonderful Stephen McCullough. So please do consider checking that out. And yeah, thanks so much for listening and hopefully see you all later. Have a lovely day. Bye-bye.